Thank you for tuning into the weekly sermon from Journey of Hope, a United Methodist community. We are a welcoming community that fosters belonging and acceptance. Through ministries, we enable individuals to transform their lives as they learn to follow Jesus Christ. We follow the guidance of the Spirit in sharing our faith through missional adventures, building relationships, and offering our witness to our community and world. We serve the Elgin, Illinois area and are located at the corner of Randall Road and Highland. To learn more about us, you can check us out at johumc.org or any of our social media platforms by searching Journey of Hope. And now, here is this week's message. Today's first reading is from Deuteronomy 21, chapter 21, verses 18 to 21. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother should take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his, his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear it and be afraid. Okay. Now, if you are able, please rise for the reading of the gospel. A little brighter. The gospel reading today is from John 8, chapter, verses 3 through 11. The teachers of, of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who was without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. May God bless the reading, hearing, and understanding of his word. Amen. There are times that I wonder where ideas for sermon series comes from. And this series is definitely one of them. Now I am certain that the Holy Spirit guided me in this direction. uh, But I do wonder why I didn't just brush it off and move on to the next idea. You know, the topics that we're going to address over the next five weeks are not necessarily the easiest to preach on. Some of them are incredibly hot-button topics, especially today. But I think we have to understand that, that the reason we are looking into these topics is because of, because of who is asking the questions. So if you're not familiar with this thing called predictive text, let me explain this for you. 
When you're looking for an answer on a certain question or desiring more information about something, one of the ways that people find that today is through the internet. We used to go to our encyclopedias or local libraries uh, and do research on the different topics. But today we have these palm-sized computers uh, that hold so much information, maybe a little too much information at times. But you see, as you begin typing the question into your favorite internet search bar, kind of like the one that you see on the screen up here, the sentence will begin to be filled out for you. So if you typed in, uh, in Google the following, where do you find, where do you find the top responses as of yesterday, I've got to say this, uh, the top responses as of yesterday are yellow marrow, red marrow, diamonds in Minecraft, and archived emails in Gmail. Those are the top five search responses for where, where do you find uh, you, will probably, you might get a different response if you type that in. But these are the top internet searches in the world for that question. Interesting, right? However, I wanted to know what is the world asking about the church and the Bible? So I typed in the following. What does the church say about? And then left the rest blank to see what would come up. I also typed in what does the Bible say about? And left it blank. The responses, I've got to say, are pretty interesting, but the five that we're going to discuss during this series are some of the top five of both of the questions asked about the church and about the Bible. People want to know the answers to these questions. Maybe even you are wondering, because this is not just Christians asking, but the entire world is asking these questions. So let's begin I'm going to encourage you, you've got your bulletin. It does have your compass guides for the rest of the week. It's got other reading passages as well as questions that you can reflect on and a spot that you can take notes so that when the Spirit speaks to you today, you will be able to jot those notes down so that you don't forget them. Will you pray with me? Gracious and almighty God, God, we come striving to hear your word. And so we long to hear your message. And so, God, I ask that the words that I speak would no longer be my own, but your words. God, that this is a message for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So I need to, I think we need to, do, to begin this series with a couple of warnings. Uh, first, while the internet might have an overabundance of information, there is also a good amount of misinformation found there. You cannot believe everything you see or read online. I know, shocker, right? (laughs) Let me just say that now. (laughs) However, there is another danger that we have to look at, and that is for the ways the Bible speaks into these questions. This comes through something called proof texting, and I've talked about this before, but what I'm referring to is taking a scripture passage out of context or thinking that a particular verse holds a universal truth, especially considering the cultural context of the day. Context is key. It's quite possible to find passages in Scripture that will back just about every single position throughout history. It has been used to oppress, to violate, and to create hate when it was never meant to. 
We must look at Scripture through the lens of the Trinitarian nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We must look at all Scripture through the lens of love. And sometimes passages like the one from Deuteronomy this morning are hard to understand. I do appreciate, Randy, the, uh, the, the thought of, okay, what do we do with this? <laughs> but that's partly why I was, had him read that one. I mean, we hear this message about stoning a person because they are simply being disobedient to their parents. And please understand that, that there is no way that the Bible condones violence against children. None. The law that we read this morning is part of the Mosaic law. It's viewed as one of those extreme laws. And many biblical scholars will say that there is no evidence that it was ever carried out. But that still leads us to our topic today about the death penalty. The Mosaic law, which is what was given through Moses, allows for the, for the death penalty in over 20 crimes. Now, these include things that you would expect, like rape and murder and kidnapping, but they also include blasphemy, promoting other religions, and the other two that we heard about this morning, being a rebellious child and adultery. And depending on the crime, the punishment would vary from stoning to burning, the sword, or even hanging. These are punishments allowed through the Mosaic Law and the Jewish people. The Romans, well, they were an entirely different class all by themselves. We know this because we have historical documents which describe some of the ways they executed capital punishment. They really worked hard to perfect the amount of pain and suffering prior to a person's actual death. Crucifixion was just one of the ways that we have documented showing the severity of the Romans' ability to execute people. But the question still comes about what the Bible and church say about the death penalty. Is this a good way to administer justice? Is this humane? Should we be looking for different ways to punish people or should we just continue to sentence people to death? Now, I am not naive to think that we all agree on this topic. This is one of those discussions that people will feel strongly about one way or another. And while I'm not sure that, that I can sway anyone to my belief, I would at least like to explore some of the arguments for and against this type of punishment for criminals. And at the same time, look into the Bible and the tradition of the church, as well as my knowledge of the topic and of my experiences that I have to help me inform my decisions and belief. This, frankly, is the Wesleyan quadrilateral, the way John Wesley would encourage us to form our beliefs, focusing on scripture, tradition, reasoning, and experience. So what do we know about this death penalty? Obviously, it's been around for centuries. We see this because of the stories we read about in the Old Testament and throughout history. So something that originated is, it is not something, I should say, that originated in the United States. It's a global phenomenon. In the States, we know the first recorded execution was in 1608 in Jamestown. 
Although we would certainly be correct in saying that executions happened as soon as foreigners began to land in this wonderful land. I would argue that Native Americans were the first to be executed. We just don't know what their crime was other than being on land that somebody else wanted. On the good side, Michigan was the first state to abolish the death penalty in 1846. Other states have followed suit, but there are still plenty of those who still use this as a form of punishment. Canada, Australia, and most of Europe have already abolished the death penalty. In my research for this week, I came across many differing views of capital punishments and arguments for as well as against it. I wonder if the librarians down at Gail Borden were like, what is he doing? (laughs) The conversations that I heard in these books and articles all seem to echo the sound of the debate that we currently find ourselves in today. No one is listening to the other side trying to understand their beliefs. Those who argue for this type of punishment will say that, that it is a good deterrent, something that will keep other criminals from committing crime because of a great fear they have about death. Another fact is a quest for retribution. We hear this in Scripture when somebody says, uh, they quote that passage, an eye for an eye. They want a life extinguished for the life or lives taken by another person. A couple who have shared this have said that it's, that it's actually different than revenge. Deborah Saunders argued that getting rid of the death penalty would eliminate plea bargains. I asked Dave about this, I'm not sure. Uh, but it, these agreements uh, keep many cases out of trial and therefore save the judicial system and taxpayers a great deal of money. But is money the only concern within this system? Louis uh, Poyman even asked for a wider scope for capital punishment. He would like to see the death penalty applied in cases of corporate treason, saying that this affects the lives of so many other people through this crime. And while these may be good reasons for upholding the death penalty, there are also reasons lifted in opposition. Studies have shown that, that there's no hard evidence of the death penalty as a deterring form of punishment for future crimes. Some have also said that there are far too many mistakes for far such a permanent solution. David Dow stated that that life without the possibility of parole is a different kind of death penalty, but a death penalty nonetheless. But I think the question we have before us today is not what does society say about the death penalty, Or how does our political beliefs guide our decisions when it comes to this topic? But what does the church, what does the Bible say about the death penalty? And this is where we, where questions like this become incredibly difficult. Because on one hand, we can find many, many instances where this kind of punishment is practiced, even required in Scripture. The Mosaic Law, as we've said, recounts many circumstances where people are to be put to death. And many times, we wouldn't think it was a crime worth that kind of punishment. Maybe we could understand those who committed murder or rape, but being a rebellious child? I feel like the world would be far less populated if we followed that law. (laughs) But I think we need to take the cultural context in mind. 
There are many laws put in place in the Mosaic Law to protect human life and health. Laws about what food was clean and unclean, as well as who you could or couldn't touch, and if you did, how many days you had to ritually clean yourself to make sure you didn't spread disease within the community or in your family. This was serious business. As the average age in the ancient Near East, Jesus' time was somewhere around 30 to 40 years. And they also had an incredibly high infant death rate. Anything that they could do to help people live longer was a welcome addition, including laws to help control it. And if this is true, then then what does this tell us about the, the nature of God? How does this speak to the heart of God's desire for us? Is it simply to punish us when we do wrong things? Or could there be more to it? I truly believe that it is God's love for creation that drives all of this, especially the law which he gave through Moses. Take an eye for an eye, for example. Does this mean that revenge should be the driver for justice? Where is the mercy? Might it mean that the judgment or sentence not exceed the crime? Of course, this still offers space for the death penalty. Genesis 9, 6 says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, while this passage is spoken of in relation to the death penalty, we must look at the context. This is God creating the covenant with Noah. And the words spoken come during a conversation about eating meat with blood still in it. There are restrictions about this because because our blood is referred to as life. God is sharing about the sanctity of life. Remember, we are made in the image of God. However, if we are truly to look at the text of the Old Testament through the corrective lens, it needs to be viewed through the lens of Jesus Christ. And here is where our passage from John comes into light. This is a story we all know very well. It's a woman who is caught in the very act of adultery and is now being sentenced to death by her stoning. Now, we're just going to have to leave the fact that there was no man there to receive the same punishment on the sideline. But don't let that fact slip your mind during your reflection time this week. She is brought out into the town square and people gathered around to execute justice on this woman. But then something miraculous happens. The church leaders ask Jesus, what would he do? You remember we talked about this. This is probably one of the first times we get, to the, get that phrase, what would Jesus do? And so before we get to the main point of that, I want to share, share about this. Let me express some of the objections from the theologians in the church about this particular story, just so that you have all the facts. Some will argue that this story is not included in some of the early manuscripts. And some of your Bibles will tell you that. And therefore should not be included in the gospel accounts, denying that they should have any bearing on how we live out our faith. Others will express that this is a scene of lynching and not a trial situation. 
Jesus' actions are merely to stop mob action and not an indictment on the sentence of stoning. I've, I've even heard people share that this is a story meant to trap Jesus by the church leaders so they wonder if it actually ever took place. And finally, because it's just a story, we shouldn't read moral value into it. Mm. However, I truly believe this happened. And therefore, we should take Jesus' words as ones that should guide us. Remember that all Scripture is Spirit-breathed and useful for teaching? So what do we learn from this passage? Three very quick things before I let you go this morning. First, Jesus says, let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. That's a little bit different than what we read this morning from the NIV. This is the ESV translation. Let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. While we imagine that Jesus is asking the crowd to search for someone who doesn't have sin so that they may begin the execution, I think we all know that Jesus is truly referring to himself. The Let him who is without sin among you. That is Jesus. He is the only one who is without sin. No one else has the authority to execute another human life. Only God can pass that judgment. Second, we should notice that Jesus does not say to execute. He doesn't offer words of appeal, abolishing the death penalty. But he does put it out of reach. His interpretation of the sentencing and execution process requires having a witness to the crime who is without sin to cast the judgment and execute the sentence. And finally, Jesus' death on the cross is the defining action in forgiveness and reconciliation. I am sure that you remember the thief that was hanging on the cross next to Jesus. He received the same death sentence that Jesus did. From the Romans, he asked Jesus to forgive him, and forgiveness was granted. Paul reminds us in Romans 12 that God's law states, this comes out of Deuteronomy as well, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And so for me, it is not ours to take a life. No matter how horrific of a crime was committed, God is the final judge. We should not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I've said it multiple times that no one, and I mean no one, is beyond the grace of God. No one is beyond the grace of God. And if I truly believe that, then I must believe that God can reach even the worst offenders. I also want to express this to you because we may not be on the same page. You may be hearing this and going, I'm not 100% sure, Pastor. My door is open. I got coffee with the pastor on Thursday morning. Love for you to come and we can talk about it even more. Uh, But this is what I see in Scripture. Jesus offering forgiveness to all people. 
all people, just as he offers forgiveness to us. Will you pray with me? Loving God, God of grace and God of mercy, God of justice. God, these are hard topics to hear, to talk about, especially knowing your nature. God, the nature of love that you are. And so, God, I wonder. I wonder how you feel about these times, about how we treat one another, and how you have called all of us to reconciliation and forgiveness. God, we know that you are the ultimate and final judge. And so, God, may we truly live our life knowing that we will stand one day before you and that you will hear our prayers of forgiveness, of confession, and the God that we pray that you would offer us grace. God, all this we, we ask in the mighty and powerful name of your Son. Amen. We have been fed this morning. We've been fed by the, the grace of God here at this table. And so as we get up from this table and we go forth, we go forth knowing that we are filled with the grace of God. We're filled with His Spirit as we go out into this world, as we go and try to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and as we love our neighbors as ourselves. How do we do that today? How do we take that with us and accomplish it today? And let us all go forth knowing that the love of God, the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit goes with you. And it goes with you always. Amen.